Thank you, Gray family. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray for us as we've heard God's word, as we've sung God's word. Lord, we pray together in the name of your son, Jesus. We pray together again today that you would take our time and cause us to pause. Lord, today is your day. We believe that every day is yours. But we especially want to stop in order to declare something as your gathered people, that Christ, as we just sang, is the everlasting Lord. We want to believe that again today. And we know that you'll cause us to throw off sin that so easily entangles us today. We ask by the help of the Holy Spirit that you'll cause us to look beyond sentimentalism of the Christmas season. Help us to do so in order to see and celebrate the ongoing story of your glorious Son, our Rescuer, Jesus Christ, and it's in His name we pray, amen. Why don't you take a seat? This Advent time together, we've been uh, in a series called The Name Above All Names, and we've been in the book of Matthew, we'll be in Matthew 1, and we'll end the the month of December in Matthew 2, Um, and walking from, uh, here with us, we've walked from Jesus is a son, the son of Uh, David and the son of Abraham at the beginning of Matthew 1. Jesus is called the Christ in verse 17 of Matthew 1. And then as you just heard in Matthew 121, you will call him Jesus. You will give him a name, Jesus. What is the significance of this? Well, we'll dig into it this day today. And then just overarching why we continue to come back to Philippians 2, particularly those verses 5 through 11, is because at at the name of Jesus, it is true, we believe that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will one day confess that Jesus is Lord. Our prayer is that, that we would continue to proclaim that in such a way that more tongues would confess it on the end of we bow the knee to to Jesus our Lord and Savior. So this is for us the third week of Advent. Technically it would be the fourth week but if you go back with us a little bit we continued through December 1 in our in our uh, time in Exodus 20 and Matthew 5 through 7 and so this is our third week Advent, simply, if this is kind of a new season for you to participate in, is, is a walking up to Christmas, but Advent is, is an ongoing theme throughout the whole of the Christian life. Advent simply means arrival or waiting on arrival, expectancy, and that is what it means to follow Jesus, is we can look back and remember the advent of our Savior in, in the sense that He was born, He came, He took on flesh. But we are in a continual season of Advent because we are awaiting His return, His promised return to make all things new, to wipe away all tears, to to finally show that victory is over sin, shame, Satan, and death. That is our continual Advent. But this particular Advent is one that leads us up to the birth of Jesus Christ. And so this third week is marked by the idea of, of joy. Uh, quickly, before we get back into Matthew 1, I do want to take us to, to Luke 2, because this is the coinciding account of what was happening in Matthew 1. You know, we have uh, the, the synoptics, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke Gospels, and then the Gospel of John, that all pick up, at some point, Christ taking on flesh. But particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
lay out a little bit more detail about the birth of Christ. And Matthew gives us these names of Jesus, of God, and Luke gives us an account of what it meant for Mary and Joseph to travel and have nowhere to stay. And so if we jump to Luke chapter 2 for a second, we've got this, this message that's given in, in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. This was a message where an angel would be, appear before shepherds watching their flock at night. And the angel appears before them in verse 10 of Luke chapter 2 and says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A great joy for who? For all people is what we're reminded. So this idea of joy is a beautiful thing of, of what does it mean to experience or live in joy beyond uh, sorrow and live in joy in the midst of sorrow. And this leads us back to Matthew chapter 1. I want to jump back to verse 18 through 21, even though we've already heard 21 read. So I'll give you a second to turn back to Matthew 1. Excuse me. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, this is verse 18 in Matthew 1, took place in this way. When Mary, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her, divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then once again in verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, the story is not unfamiliar to many of us. Mary and Joseph, we've, we've already heard in the beginning of Matthew 1, the promise of a Savior. You know, that, that this wasn't just something that happened haphazardly, like, oh, let's, let's flip the script as if God said, hey, I've got a new plan. No, from the foundation, from the beginning, Jesus Christ would be the rescuer, the one to come, the one to take on flesh. And here we are, we see this this cycle for Israel from the Old Testament of God giving them promises of redemption over and over, a promise of delivering them from exile in Egypt, and then they're delivered, and then what happens? He says, okay, I want you to follow me in this way. I'm giving you promises in this way. I'm giving you certain signs. There'll be certain markers that will show you that I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. You're going to have the land to inherit. And so we see these cycles all the way up where Israel continues to continue of like, I'm following you. Now I'm rebelling against you because I don't believe you. I'm doing my own thing. I'm figuring out my own way to God saying, you've rebelled against me again. I'm going to punish you for that. There are things that I'm going to take away, but I'm not going to remove myself completely from you. I promise you a deliverer will come. Wait on me. Continue to follow me. Continue to bow down to me as Lord, all the way up leading to Christ. So we, when we see in Matthew 1 that genealogy from our first week here in Advent, 
seeing those promises from, from Abraham all the way through David up to Joseph, the father of Jesus, the earthly father of Jesus. <coughs> Jesus is called the son in Matthew 1, the son of David, and the son of Abraham, and then later in verse 17, he's acknowledged as the Christ, the anointed one. Now in verse 21, Joseph is told, you shall call his name Jesus. You know, what's interesting about the name of Jesus is it wasn't an unusual name. You know, it wasn't actually an uncommon name. I immediately, my mind goes to, well, why give Jesus, the Son of God, who was always with God, who was the second person in the, the, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who's always been, who's not like insubordinate or lower than, than the Godhead, right? They're equal in their status, but distinct in their function. Why in the world would you give him such a common name? I mean, if we think about God's name for a second, in the Old Testament, we see the word Yahweh given for God. Well, who gave him that name? Well, he gave himself that name, meaning I am. Who are you? I am. I've always been. I will be. This description God gives himself for this name, God gives himself, and yet he gives his son a common name. Where, where are some of the places that we see Jesus used? There's a few other places uh, in the Bible. And then there's some extra biblical literature where we see certain priests who are named Jesus. Uh, Josephus, a historian, would give us many names of, of Jesus used throughout time. And then, of course, modern day we hear the name of Jesus used throughout. <coughs> a couple of biblical references. Man, I know when I cough and this is really annoying. Pray for me. Uh, in Acts 13, you remember when we were in Acts for a while? In Acts 13, we're going back for a second, there was a Jewish false prophet referred to as Elymas, a magician. Well, his name was Bar-Jesus, or translated in Aramaic or Hebrew, son of. Bar is son of Jesus. And then in Colossians 4, Paul tells the church to welcome an individual Welcome this guy named Jesus, who was also called Eustus. And then in Matthew 27, the same book we're in currently, when Jesus is before Pilate, you guys may remember a name, Barabbas. Uh, there were some early manuscripts and translations. You can even see some, some modern-day biblical translations that go back to referring to Barabbas. His actual name was Jesus Barabbas. It, it makes sense when Pilate's language before the people, when they're like, we want this guy gone, Jesus, he says, who do you want me to release? And it's kind of interesting, the, the play on words that Matthew himself is a Hebrew-speaking, Hebrew-understanding, Greek-writing individual uh, would, would take. He, he says, who do you want me to release? Literally, Jesus, the son of the father, Jesus Barabbas? Or do you want me to release this other Jesus, Jesus who is called the Christ? So these are just a few examples that show us that Jesus' name was, was a common one. So common name, yes, but purposeful and completely in the Lord's name, in, in, in the Lord's design, absolutely. Uh, from the explanation that's given at the end of verse 21, when it says, You will name him Jesus, or call him Jesus, why? For he will save his people from their sins. You see, that was the meaning of the name Jesus. It's the Greek translation. When we think about the name Jesus in English, in Greek it was Jesus. 
which actually derived from Hebrew, two words combined, the Yah sound coming from Yahweh, and the rest of it would come from the, the, the end of that phrase, Hosea. So, Yahweh meaning I am, and Hosea meaning salvation. Together, Yeshua would be the Hebrew combination of that name. The Lord is salvation. In the Old Testament, Yeshua was a name common as well. You may remember the name Joshua that came from Yeshua, or that was the name Yeshua. Actually, in Numbers 13, when, when Moses is sending out some individuals, he sends out an individual from every tribe. There were 12 tribes of Israel. He sends them out saying, we are going to take this land. God has promised us Canaan. Go out and look at it. Well, Joshua was one of those individuals. In fact, in Numbers 13, in your translation here in the ESV that we read together, you would actually see the name Hosea, son of Nun. And then later, Moses at the end of 13 would say, Hosea, now called Joshua. And so there's this, there's this interesting thing here where we see Jesus' name derived from Joshua or Yeshua, which is literally meaning the Lord is salvation, and now Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus in Greek meaning Yahweh saves. So Jesus is updating updated name meaning Yahweh saves. He has arrived. We look back in the Old Testament, a momentary salvation, because we if we hear the story or we read the story of Joshua in the book of Joshua, as there were these momentary wins for Israel. God is redeeming us, God is rescuing us. So there's a momentary salvation, a further glimpse into the covenant blessings of God given through Joshua as Israel conquered and inherited land. They originally uh, had a hard time believing that the Lord would truly give them. And then we move forward to Jesus, who would be the fulfillment of that all. So the meaning, simply the meaning of the name, I think it's just worth doing a quick word study on the name of Jesus so we understand the significance of why would we call this guy Jesus. What's also interesting and this will continue to unfold as we look into Matthew one twenty one, is how God takes what we view as common and He makes much of it, right? He takes the things that we say, that doesn't seem significant, that doesn't seem special, and yet shows us just how special the things are in the common and just how uh, miraculous and massive God is working in the mundane and the regular we look here at our place in Matthew 1 as we approach Christmas, and we see the son of David, the son of Abraham, the promised one, the Christ, the anointed one in verse 17, and now in verse 21, the name given to our Savior, Jesus, Jesus, the one who gives ongoing, not momentary, but on, ongoing salvation, for he will do much more than save you from an earthly enemy. He will save you from your sins. And that is how verse 21 ends. So this is what makes the birth of Christ and, and the whole Christmas time celebration so much more than a manger scene, right? Because when I think about Matthew 121 and Luke 2 and these accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ, it's easy to just go, how, how sweet, how sentimental, 
how nice that he would do this. Oh, that's special that that would happen. Oh, look, they found a place when it looked like they wouldn't have a place for themselves. The manger just shows us and th- that the eyewitness account is, is true as well as today that God keeps his promises. You know, if we go back to Luke tw- 2 that we read earlier, the account for the shepherds, the angel had already appeared before Joseph and Mary saying, you will lie him in a manger. You will wrap him in swaddling cloth as you name him Jesus. And then the Lord gives this beautiful confirmation before the shepherds through the voice of the angel. Go and find this guy. This is how you'll know he's the guy. You'll find him in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And so God just proving, like, I stay true to my word. I'm not trying to fool you. I'm not trying to throw you off. This is the true Messiah. He has come. And so the shepherds mentioned in Luke 2 were given this sign. And the manger scene shows us that God's promise would not be stopped. This is just a continuation of his rescue plan. I think that's the significance of the name Jesus, that Yahweh is saving. Yahweh saves. So I think what will be striking for us today, because it's one thing to just talk about it and go, oh great, let's just celebrate the name of Jesus and move on, is it always exposes something within us. It always exposes something about just how magnificent God is and how often we just fail to bow down and acknowledge just how magnificent He is. Sometimes we just pick and choose little things about God or the character of God, or I just like this about you, but all these other things I just forget so often. But it exposes so many things about us, so what will be striking or always striking about Jesus' birth is, is how behind the scenes everything was. You know, when we think about Jesus, when we think about the story leading up to Jesus, Israel was hoping for a grandiose arrival, right? I mean, if, if you're Israel and you've gone from the, the story of exile, going like we've been through all this persecution, we've been through these trials... And God has told us all along the way that someone's going to come and eventually conquer your enemies. That you're going to eventually inherit the land that I've promised to you. That you will be my people. I'm thinking, all right, this guy's showing up like on a unicorn with wings and he's got a flaming sword. I don't know why it'd have to be a unicorn because that's sometimes, I don't know, if you like unicorns, that's cool. But... You just think he's going to show up just in like shining armor and he's just going to slash everything. And here we look at the story of Christ lying in a manger and it's like, it's like what we sing. Like when we sing the song in Christ alone together, fullness of God in what? In helpless babe. Why in the world? Why not just send Christ and just like make it done? Shouldn't there be more pomp? If, if the government was to be on his shoulders, shouldn't there be this grandiose entrance? Well, this isn't new sentiment for us. We've talked about this before, about the birth scene of Christ and that it was dirty and it was in a barn stall. But here's what I believe that this reveals about Jesus and reveals about us. So let's begin with Jesus because there's no better place to begin, right? Back to our passage in Philippians 2. You want to turn back there. I'm quick to like the part about every knee will bow at the name of Jesus and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Verses 7 and 8, though. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. Let's, let's read that. What does it say? But he emptied himself. By what? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. That's not the kind of leader I want to prop up, to be honest. That's not the kind of leader that I like the idea of. That sounds weak, doesn't it? That sounds like failure. That sounds like a common story we see in life now, right? We have this idea of who should lead what. We have this idea of you need to be a strong communicator and you've got to say these things and you've got to stand up in this way and if you admit any kind of weakness, that's what we're, we're prone to do in our workplace. It's what we're prone to do or believe in politics. It's what we're prone to do in our neighborhood is let me have the upper hand. If I show weakness, then that's failure. You know, this isn't a new story for us that we've talked about here at Church in the Square. There is beauty in weakness. Because what does weakness truly do? It displays the glory of the Father and the strength of a magnificent God. That's not the kind of leader we like to prop up these days. Nothing seems to last or be good that's done in weakness. What we mistake for weakness is actually an incredible way of Christ giving us the reality that not only would he fulfill the Father's will to save his people from their sins in Matthew 121, to rescue a helpless people, but he would exemplify, he would show us, he would live it out before us how we're to walk and talk with others, how we're to live in weakness, how we're to respond in weakness. You see, it's not just the manger scene, Jesus' whole life put that on display. There are so many times where we read about he was despised and rejected. There were prophecies that would show us in the Old Testament, Isaiah for one, that would tell us he would be a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. This wouldn't be a, a I've been born and now I cut this off because I'm the Savior of the world. No, I'm going to experience it. I mean, we can just think about Jesus' temptation. Growing up as a child and then going out 40 days and Satan going, hey, Man, you don't have to live this way. If you're the God man, if you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. Throw yourself off this cliff. The angels will catch you. You're good. No, I'm going to be a man acquainted with grief. To be God, I don't have to take on those titles. I've always been. I've always been the Savior. Jesus lived his life as a stranger, an outcast, a sojourner. We're reminded of this in John 1. You know, John gives us the, the word made flesh idea of Jesus, right? He doesn't go into detail about Mary and Joseph in the manger scene, but he gives us this wonderful reminder that Jesus wasn't an afterthought, that he was before time. And then in verse 10 of John 1, he says, Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You know, as we were reminded in the last couple of weeks, 
Jesus' example from the manger to the end of his earthly life, it gave us a reason to be long-suffering, right? To, to live a certain way and to rest and to wait. We reminded that last week. And people of, be people of patience and endurance as we follow him. But here's what's revealed about us when we read Matthew 121, or here's what's revealed about me. When we remember the manger scene, Matthew 121, and then as it's described in Luke 2, the same way Israel expected the Messiah to come riding in. Remember, Israel had not heard anything for 400 years. That's another thing for us to remember today. You know, after the last prophet, Israel had a season of 400 years. Can you imagine four centuries where there's no word of the Lord given to them? It's like, that's it. Wait. You've been in exile. You're wandering. Hold on. Hold tight. Nothing. Silence. Nothing. Can't you imagine how the expectation was for a warrior with a fiery sword to show up? Especially if it's like, what if we haven't heard anything? So surely, if this is the guy coming on the scene, he's about to just slay Rome. He's about to slay any of our oppressors. If he's to be the son of David, then he should arrive in royal vestments. I'm thankful that we get the full picture. When we get God's word, we get to see here's the promise, here's the fulfillment, and here's the promise, the hope that lies before us. We get the whole counsel of God. But we're not off the hook here. Here's the, the revealing for us. The same way Israel had expectations, I believe that we expect that trusting Jesus means that somehow the humble things, the ordinary or less desirable job, the mundane things, the unnoticed things that are supposed to now be different, all these things would somehow just fade away. Follow Jesus and life won't be mundane anymore. Follow Jesus and exciting things will happen. Follow Jesus and X, Y, Z will come true, right? Like faithfully following Jesus is supposed to put us on the map or, or somehow, you know, make us do big things for God. You know, isn't that true of us? Sometimes we believe that. All right, Jesus has come. I'm following him. I'm trusting him. I'm believing in his name. So now let's go do big things for God. But just as we begin here at the manger... We look beyond trusting the name of Jesus, he always saves, means following in him into the less desirable, the unnoticed, into the dark of night, the same way Mary and Joseph would travel under the cover of the dark of night. When everyone is asleep, when no one's noticing, when no one's applauding what we're doing, when all the other ends are full and there's no place to sit, it's time to sit with a Savior whose grace is sufficient. You know, isn't that true of us? It reveals sometimes that we believe that, well, Jesus took on the common, but I shouldn't have to. I shouldn't have to sit in that. Following Jesus should kind of put me on the map, should give me something better. I think that one's one that we've rehearsed over and over in our church family here. But another thing that it reveals that maybe we don't rehearse so much, you know, this comes up from a, a church planter friend of mine who pastors in uh, Missouri, in Columbia, Missouri. When he says this, he says, if God can show up in the darkness of a stable among the animals and the shepherds, then he can show up anywhere. 
if God in flesh, Jesus, would subject himself to the places that aren't clean, the places that aren't pristine, the places that aren't desirable by the masses, then we can look for Jesus to show up in the messiness of our own lives. And this is, this is where it struck me this week, is I am very quick, and I don't think this is just because I'm on staff at a church, I think this is for us as God's people, is we're very quick to go, I'm praying for so-and-so, and that's a good thing, don't get me wrong, if you leave here today going, oh, so I should no longer consider others and pray that they would come to know Jesus, then we've messed up royally, or I have. Uh, but sometimes we spend so much time going, you need Jesus, and we go, but when it comes to Jesus stepping into my mess, when it comes to Jesus stepping into the darkness to expose, it's like stiff arm. I don't think you can handle that. I don't, I don't want you to handle that. I don't want that to go on. No matter how many times I hear it out loud about Jesus, I still believe He's only for others, not for me. I think this is both in arrogance and in self-deprecation. It's easy for me to celebrate Christ going to the darkest place to shine the light when I hear stories of others. Oh, listen to this restoration story of a brother or sister in Christ here at Church in the Square. Look at God's faithfulness. We should celebrate that. But often it's, it's me going, I'm glad that He did that for them. I'm glad that the Lord is present with them and working on them. But I don't know about myself. I don't know about that. It's easy to celebrate that. I'm arrogant enough to go, finally, that person needed it, right? Can you identify with that? That person needed a change. It was time. And then just forget, like, I'm in need of being worked on over and over. <coughs> when it comes to my mess, I want to give Jesus the stiff arm. You can't handle this. This is too personal. Some of us sitting here agreeing with that sentiment. We have a posture as if Jesus, who is taking on flesh, identifying completely with us, either won't understand us or he won't care to work on the mess. Jesus emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, being born in a barn of Bethlehem, stepping into the lives of sinners and tax collectors, touching the outcast, touching the contagiously sick, being with the people that were the despised and rejected, providing an eternal healing for sin sickness by His cross means that He again today is in the midst of your mess. So back to this idea of joy, not just joy beyond sorrow, but joy in the midst. He's in the midst of your marriage that's falling apart if you're married here. He's in the midst of your singleness where you desire to remain single and you just go, I don't think anyone else respects my desire. Or you're single here and you go, I really desire a spouse and it's not happening for me. Jesus is in the midst of it. If, if you're sitting here and you're going, I'm still in this pornographic addiction and I don't want anyone to know about it, and I don't think it'll ever be dealt with, and I don't think I'll ever truly repent of it. Jesus stands in the midst of it and says, I have overcome this. Follow me. I step into the mess. We could probably have a litany of things that we could write down. Consider those things as you continue on this week. 
that Jesus has stepped into the mess. He puts it on display from the manger, through his life, to the cross. And even as he reigns and rules and promises a return, I'm here in the midst of your mess. So how often do we give the stiff arm and go, I don't think you can handle that. Matthew 1.21, Yahweh saves the name of Jesus, means he stands in the midst of it. You know, also, this brings us back to our rhythms here at Church in the Square. It brings us back to our, our call to worship, our confession, our time of assurance that, that Paul led us in earlier, our time in communion at the table, our benediction. All these things remind us that God has shown up. You know, our call to worship, it's an example of, of why we participate in this rhythm together, right? We're not calling Jesus to come now. We're acknowledging that we have been called out, that He has stepped in. This is the whole idea of the name of Jesus. He's taken on flesh. He has walked among us. He has taken on every single trial. He's lived every single heartache. He's dealt with it all. And so our call to worship, we, we're reminded every time we're celebrating, we're reminded to celebrate and adore and cherish the fact that God has shown up and He's called out to us and said, I am stepping in to your mess. I'm stepping in the midst of it. I have come among you and I'm calling you out through my Son, Jesus Christ. I'm calling you out of darkness. So I think for us as we begin to close, it's not too hard to want Jesus. It's not too hard to cry out in the name or for the name of Jesus saying, come rescue, I need you. I think we all love the idea of blessings towards us. Yahweh saves, we like the idea of you've come to forgive us, to help us for the future. It's the part where Jesus has come to step into the ignored places. And this goes back to that stepping into our own midst. But we can't forget that there are, there are two types of ignored places, right? There are the ignored places that we don't want to go, right? That we look on with disdain. You know, I think this is the other question it leads for us is how often, how, how quick are we to, as we follow Jesus, to, to say, Jesus, I know you've shown up. I know you've come to rescue, to save, to redeem a people, to reconcile a people to your Father, to provide forgiveness. But as we look at, at our neighbor who just seems so far gone, or as we look at that individual, we just go, man, I don't even like the idea of them being rescued. They've hurt me so badly that I don't like the idea of them changing because I don't want them to have anything good. You know, what, how is that exposing the ignored places for us? Jesus, go to the ignored places. Go to the people that we even look at with disdain. And Lord, forgive us for doing so. So how do we... Ignore both of those things where Jesus has come to step into the ignored places, both in looking for his lost sheep to bring back into the fold as well as the ignored corners of our own heart where we want the mess just stuffed away and hidden or swept under the carpet. Jesus, Yahweh saves, has come to transform us from the inside out so that we would proclaim, so that we would then be a blessing, proclaim the name of Jesus, not only as recipients who got what we needed, but as heralds 
So the name of Jesus was given so that we would keep announcing it, right? Announcing it to ourselves and before the watching world. It's why we come together and gather and remind each other, right? We're not just coming here and going, I hope I bring it someone who doesn't know Jesus, although that's a wonderful thing. I'll just bring them. That's why we gather here so you guys can come and see and just let people proclaim Jesus and we'll hope you trust him. No, it's because we don't trust him to deal with our mess. Every time we come through, we go through the same rhythms of, Lord, again, I need to be pointed back and I need my brothers and sisters to point me back that Jesus, you're in the midst of it all. You're standing in the middle of it all and your promises remain. A couple of reminders from us again, just that God's Word, I think we can't ignore quickly, Acts 4, as we think of the name of Jesus. Just a few reminders. Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then one of my favorite passages, Colossians 3, you know, the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the church reminds us of of the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the name, the status of Christ as, as ruler of both transcendent and near. You know, in Colossians 3, we're given this beautiful reminder of how the, the word of the Lord should dwell in us richly as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But it continues in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of who? In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I want to close and just, you don't have to turn there, but, but hear this. This is a passage that's often used just to think about the cross of Christ. But I think it's helpful for us, Isaiah 53, to remember that actually this is talking about the fullness of the promise of Christ. From birth to life to death to burial to resurrection. So hear this, Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. From call to worship to confession to assurance, reading of the, of, of the Lord's word, of God's word, this brings us to the table. You know, the story of Christ from the manger just can't stop there. You know, when we, when we preach before one another, when we tell each other the story of Christ's arrival, of his birth, of the name of Jesus, of taking on the flesh, 
It's this whole story that, that continues on, and it leads us to the table. It leads us to the table as we finish that, that passage in Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. You know, the table is a place where we come to as followers of Jesus, the people who have trusted Jesus. It's a place we come to be reminded every time we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, certainly the sorrows of our Lord, the humanity of our Lord, that He's taken on flesh, that He's conquered death's sting. But He brings us to a table to celebrate too, to acknowledge, exalt the name of Jesus in a way that we haven't before, or a way that we often forget to do. And so in a moment as you take this, I invite you to do the same. A time to pause, examine, and say, Lord, search me and know me. Expose the things, how I don't believe that you're here to still work on me. Expose the ways that maybe I've just been hiding out. and Just going, yeah, Jesus is for you all, but you're not for working on what's going on, for what I'm willing to hide from everyone around me. And as we come to the table, also celebrate that the, the humanity, of, humanity of Jesus his humble, his humility on display is also one where, where Jesus gives us a promise that I'm not here to crush you. I actually was crushed in your place. When I stand in the midst of your sin and I work on your mess, I'm not here to just finish you. I'm not here to slay you. I'm here to destroy your sin. And I'm coming back so that I'll slay sin finally. So that tears will be wiped away finally. And so this is a celebration for us. A celebration, good news of great joy, just like the message given to the shepherds that night from God's delivered angels. You know, that story is so beautiful because the shepherds, as they stood there, they were people who were also despised. The shepherds were people who had the animals for the sacrifices. They were the ones who were keeping watch over the lambs who would be sacrificed. Well, because of that, they weren't able to participate in these rituals. They were considered unclean. They were handling the animals that were supposed to be taking on all this sin, the sacrificial system. But yet, who does God send His message to first? He sends it to the shepherds, the lowly ones. And it reminds us that Jesus shows up for the poor in spirit, too. We all, apart from Christ, are the poor in spirit. We all, until Jesus returns, are still the poor in spirit because we're in need of a continued rescuer. And so as we take this meal, examine, and celebrate, remember, hear the word of the Lord as we prepare to take the meal. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Again, His humility on display. He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a follower of Jesus, this meal is for you. If you're not, if you're here today and you go, you know what? No, that's, that's not me. I don't know this Savior or I don't know Him in the way that you've explained it today. 
don't take this meal, but take Christ. We implore, be reconciled to God. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. We'd love to talk with you more about this afterwards, if that's you, or meet with you throughout the week. There are plenty. If you're a member here, you have the gospel on your lips. We are happy to walk alongside you in this and prepare you to take this meal in the future. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your humanity. It's often easy to just remember Jesus and just believe that you're far off and that you didn't really walk the, all the things that you said you did. You didn't really come among the lowly and the outcast. And um, How that teaches us to not only love neighbor, but it teaches us that, that you're willing to step into our own lives and that by the power of the Spirit that you leave in your people, that you're willing to continue to work on us. That's how you have stepped into the midst of our mess that's ongoing. Thank you for being Yahweh who saves, our continual rescuer. Help us to remember it and believe it over and over. It's in your name, in the name of Jesus, the only one who can save, that we pray and celebrate. Amen.